0: Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 20, Means to an End. The closer Adolf Hitler got to power, the more he thought of his many goals. He would once again make Germany great, bring the German people from various nation states together and protect them, humble Germany's rivals, and once and for all, settle the Jewish problem as he saw it for Europe. But how to accomplish that last part? How could he find every Jew out there, even within Germany, the number reportedly 600,000 or so? And he wasn't just after the Jews that still practiced their beliefs or wore their unique clothes. He wanted them all. The Jews that had converted to Christianity, the ones that had an earlier relative simply marry into a Jewish family, the ones who no longer practiced, or perhaps their great-grandparents stopped and they didn't even know they were of that line. Yes, he wanted them all. Which meant that identification of their kind was at the basis of any successful plan. After that was done, then the rest could follow. Separation from their community, collecting them into a central place, preferably near a train station, for the next part, their removal from German life. This would make the ultimate goal possible. Termination. But how to find them? How to organize them? How could he create a system that would net every Jew within Germany to forever solve the Jewish question and their influence over the world? Obviously, he didn't have a system to solve this problem. But someone else did. And that system revolved around punch cards and a sorting machine. Obviously crude by today's standards, but more than effective enough for what Nazi Germany needed. And the system would be tweaked over time to further assist those customers of the Third Reich. But who would share such means, especially if they knew even a small part of Nazi Germany's true objective? That is what we will look at. Shortly after coming to power, Hitler and Goering staged the Reichstag fire to give the new leader dictatorial powers. And among all the other decrees and propaganda blitzes that hit the German people, some were new rules against the Jews. First, it started with Jewish merchants were no longer allowed to place ads in phone books. Okay, unfair, but moderate, compared to the declarations expressed as Hitler moved ever closer to the chancellery. Then those selected merchants could no longer set up stalls in the marketplace. Again, A tough measure, going after their ability to make a living, but certainly not unprecedented. However, like only being able to see the tip of an iceberg, worse measures were soon to surface. Soon thereafter, Nazi gangs combed the streets, smashing the windows of Jewish-owned shops. Members of Jewish families were drugged from their houses and beaten up. Some killed. Some disappeared into the night forever. On March 20th, 1933, a month into Hitler's power, the first concentration camp was opened at Dachau, just north of Munich. At first, this camp just held political prisoners and undesirables, but other camps would follow, and those detained people for different reasons. By April of that same year, 1933, 60,000 Jews were being held, and another 10,000 had fled the country. One would think this latter group would also please Hitler. But that was not the case. He didn't want any of them getting away. He wanted them caught. Soon after, stories started coming out of Germany, telling of the treatment of its Jewish citizens. In reaction, anti-Hitler or anti-Nazi demonstrations were being held in major cities of the U.S. and throughout Europe. In midtown Manhattan on May 10, 1933, Over 100,000 people assembled and insisted that every business in the U.S. stop working with Nazi Germany. The same thing was happening in other cities in the Western world. So, businesses all over had to ask themselves, was it worth it to continue to work with the Nazis? Ironically, Thomas Watson, the head of IBM, was spared this question although there had been a direct connection between IBM and a business it mostly owned in Germany since the mid-1920s. While saving the details for later, an entity called Dehomag, Homag, 90% owned by IBM, leased IBM technology, to gather, sort, and process information for Nazi Germany when Hitler came to power. Although technically, within Germany, Die Homage's largest customer was the Reichsbahn, Or German railway to make sure their trains ran on time. IBM's dazzling sorting ability was also used for other things. Food was tracked within Germany. After all, Hitler pledged to feed those that had starved under the democratic parties. But there is a distinction. Because the Nazi party had begun gathering information about Germany's population with the card-punching process, the new leaders were able to steer food to certain areas of the country and away from other areas, say those with a heavy concentration of Jews. Also, as for the trains that were running on time, some of them now carried political prisoners, as well as Jews that had read posted signs to report to a nearby train station. Because before stories got out about what the SS was doing to the Jews, the Nazis already had detailed information about who lived where, their names, their occupation, and whether or not they were Jewish. So, before the terror proper started, signposts would spring up in a town or village with painfully exacting lists for certain people to report to a train station by a certain time and date. And thanks to IBM-owned technology, making sure everything ran perfectly, there were always enough train cars to carry those away that reported as ordered. However, none of the punch cards that used IBM technology that were only available through IBM had that name or Thomas Watson's name, who was by now synonymous with IBM, on any of the punch cards being used in Germany or Europe. Instead, they had the name Dehomag, a company that was 10% owned by a German national. So, for all intents and purposes, there was no connection to make between the system being used by the Nazis and the powerful corporation in the U.S. On the flip side, the potential for profits was all but limitless. Thomas Watson knew that as the U.S. was fighting the Great Depression... The government needed detailed information on its people and businesses in order to further help the citizens. In fact, the size of his company had doubled during the time. Obviously, Hitler wanted to do something very different than Roosevelt in gathering this information. As the dictator was also going to need to go much farther, he would need even more collecting and sorting of information. It was a business owner's dream. And IBM in New York knew most of what was going on, some of it day to day, because Watson demanded translations sent to him. He would never let his second largest contract escape his close supervision. Of course, as time went by, he wanted to know less. He still wanted the work and the pay that went with it, but not so much the details. It was a forerunner of don't ask, don't tell. When U.S. law was changed, not allowing any direct contact between American businesses and Nazi Germany, IBM's Swiss office took over and continued to send New York detailed accounts of what was going on. Over time, there would be more than 2,000 card reader systems in Germany and throughout German-dominated areas. And of those 2,000 machines, there was one near every major concentration camp. Now, the machines of Dehomag were not sold to Nazi Germany or individual departments of the Nazi government. They were leased only, which meant most of the work was being handled by Dehomag or IBM Germany. Officially, its name was Deutsche Hollerith maschinen gesellschaft or Hollerith machine company But, as with many creations from the German language that had long names this one was shortened for ease as the punch card system was customized for the nazis' purpose more dehomag employees were needed as were more punch cards to give an idea of the scale involved just over 1.5 billion punch cards were created in germany in just one year but let's start at the beginning which means going back before there was a punch card system and ibm or Nazi Germany. The man who set the wheels in motion of our story was a German inventor named Erman Hollerith. He started his own company in 1896. His idea was to create a census tabulating company. Hollerith was born in 1860, but his parents came over from Germany to settle in Buffalo, New York, when he was very young. His father died when he was seven, But his mother, displaying that proud German outlook, took care of her children. Hollerith moved to New York City at age 15 and graduated from Columbia School of Mines with a degree in engineering at age 19. Having impressed his professors with his near-perfect marks, he was invited in 1879 to become an assistant in the U.S. Census Bureau. Of course, at the time, the census was little more than a headcount, owing to the inability of computation of much more than a single statistic. So, moving to Washington, D.C., he began his work knowing that the census, about to be taken in 1880, would take an entire decade to cipher. Already his mind was working to advance this severely limited practice. One day, he saw a train conductor punch tickets in a certain pattern that would denote the user's height, clothing, and hair color to make sure another person didn't use the card again later. If you will, a punched photograph. It immediately dawned on him that a card with standardized holes was the way to go. Of course, one would need a reader, that is, a machine that could sense the locations of the holes in each card, but that, more or less, had already been worked out. If a card had enough holes in it, any criteria, really, could be searched for, and the cards, once sorted by the reader, could be stacked into separate piles. So, in 1884, Hollerith borrowed a few thousand dollars from a German friend. The only person his pride would let him ask was a fellow German, and built a prototype. After experimenting on organizing the information of the dead in a local health care department of the surrounding area, Hollerith was ready to move forward. He obtained contracts from the New York Central Railroad to process their freight bills and helped Prudential with their financial records. But as time went on, he tweaked his process. Soon, his little machine could analyze information it received, correlating in weeks what it would take humans years to accomplish. When the U.S. Census Bureau organized a contest for the best automated counting machine for its 1890 census, Hollerith won. His creation went on to save the Bureau some $5 million. The computations were completed in record time, and instead of five questions being asked, the survey gathered information from 235 questions. The U.S. government would lease Hollerith's system for $750,000 for his census work. But he would not sell it. Here his pride and personality dominated his business sense. And since the government only needed it every ten years, he would now go out and look for commercial opportunities. He didn't have to look too hard. Already at least six European countries were ready to work with him. Again, he leased his machines and controlled the entire process. The punchers, the sorters, and tabulators. Even with all the success waiting to be had, Hollerith's own personality got in the way. He was abrasive, uncouth, and believed everyone was out to steal his monopoly. Because that's what it was. Besides his creation, Hollerith only cared about one thing, his German heritage. Well, and his cat, Bismarck. He would only sail on German vessels and would be friendly to anyone who was German, no matter how they treated him. And I just have to tell you this, the irony will not escape you. Obsessed with his privacy and that of Bismarck's, his cat, Hollerith had a fence put around his new home. But neighbor's cats would climb over and chase Bismarck. So Hollerith put up electrical wires at the top of the fence and connected them to a battery. So whenever a strange cat climbed the fence, Hollerith, who was sitting at the window watching, sent electric currents through the wire, and watched the surprised cat jump in pain. After returning from Russia with a large contract, Hollerith was ready to incorporate. He settled on Georgetown in Washington, D.C., as his location. The company's name, Tabulating Machine Company. This enterprise would one day be called IBM. Now it was the tabulating machine company that helped the U.S. government with its 1900 census. But soon thereafter, the Census Bureau's new chief, Simon North, found out that Hollerith had been overcharging the government so he could undercharge private clients and thus expand his business. What's more, Hollerith and the previous census head seemed to have worked out many deals that greatly benefited the tabulating company. But the kicker was when Hollerith hired the former census head, when he left the government, to be the president of his company just under Hollerith. North, the new director of the census department, made some of his findings public, and Hollerith fought back by criticizing North before Congress. But North had an ace up his sleeve. Hollerith's patents would run out in 1906, So, North started shopping around for other companies to do the tabulating, and he soon found one. Hollerith then found himself booted out of the census business in the United States. Hollerith hated challenges to his authority, and what's more, he hated losing. Depressed, he all but gave up working with his company, which struggled on, but lost money and clients. Then, in 1910, he found a way to get revenge. As the U.S. government was gearing up for another census, Hollerith sued the federal government, saying they could not carry on with the census because the new company was using his technology. At first, he got a judge to agree with him, but then it was overturned. After all, taking the census was a constitutional imperative. Hollerith's tabulating machine company took another vicious body blow. Hollerith's enthusiasm for his business And his health took a turn for the worse. Before long, his doctors wanted him away from the stress. The stockholders wanted him away from everything else. But Hollerith would get his revenge. In that same year, 1910, he licensed all his patents to one Willy Heidinger, an adding machine salesman in Germany. Heidinger, grateful, established the Deutsche Hollerith Maschinen Gesellschaft, but it was called Dehelmach. For short, it's worth repeating that Dehormat only licensed Hollerith technology. The tabulating company back in the U.S. still owned the patents. And it more than pleased Hollerith to discover that Heidinger was just as proud, arrogant, and combative as he was. And in the next year, 1911, Hollerith decided to get out completely by selling his part of the company to Charles Flint. Flint, worthy of his own story, had mastered the concept of trusts, which were anti-competitive entities that gobbled up competition and fixed prices to suit themselves. Charles Flint was known as the father of trusts, would sell anything to anyone regardless of consequences, like guns to Russia and Japan during their series of military contests. And Flint would retain his ways until the Sherman Antitrust Act, Became law. So Flint put together a trust of four unrelated companies, with the tabulating machine company being at its center. Hollerith was well paid for his part and stepped down as an active manager. But Flint already knew who he wanted to run the show Thomas J. Watson. Thomas J. Watson had started out selling pianos and sewing machines in New York State in the early 1890s and had the skills of a natural-born salesman. And he had perfected his craft, riding up and down those dirt roads, matching his wits and strength of personality against anyone he came upon. He became obsessed with closing the deal. And then he heard of a wonderful concept, the commission. So it was goodbye to sewing machines and hello to selling shares for a savings and loan in Buffalo. All, of course, a cut of the action. Again, Watson, tall, good-looking, and charming, rose to the top. But it was time again to move onward and upward. In 1895, at the age of 21, Watson met John Range, who ran the Buffalo office of the National Cash Register Company, but it was simply called the Cash. So now, Watson was selling cash registers and making even more money. But there was a reason for that. Not only was he a good salesman, but he had learned from range how to undercut the competition and how to crush them. But not with better prices or services, but by spying on the other companies and getting to where they were going first. In no time, Watson so impressed the owner of The Cash, a man named Patterson, that Patterson moved him to his worst-performing office in Rochester. Watson again excelled and turned the place around. And he had learned a few more tricks. Following the salesman around from another company, he would then swoop down on the person holding their new register, yelling and saying that the other company was violating patent laws and that any of their customers would probably be brought into the lawsuit. Of course, they could get out of that by getting rid of the machine and buying one of his. He would even throw in a discount just to show no hard feelings. It worked, and soon other register companies were either being bought up for a fraction of their worth or going out of business altogether. Patterson, the owner, overjoyed promoted Watson, and he moved him to his New York City branch. He gave him a big budget and told him to go on destroying other companies. Watson, for once, didn't have to worry about making money, just underselling everyone around him. And again, he excelled at this. But in excelling, Watson and other executives had crossed all imaginable lines of decency. And on February twenty-second, 1912, the cash's leaders and top salesmen were indicted by the federal government for restraining trade and attempting to construct a monopoly. And a year later, they were all convicted. But then luck, or chance, stepped in. That winter and spring in Dayton, Ohio, floods came. Parts of the city were soon under water. This was followed up by a tornado that ravaged the rest of the city that still stood. Many were now homeless, and communication was impossible. That is, except for the cash. Their telephone lines were still working, and the men who were waiting to hear their sentencing went into action. They retooled their factories to produce small rowboats to help save those stranded. It got to the point where they could put out a boat every seven minutes. Water and medicine were also brought in at the cash's expense, and parts of their property were converted into medical centers. Roads and railways that had washed away were quickly rebuilt, paid for by the cash. Overnight, these very men, previously called Mexican bandits, were now national heroes. And these heroes all admitted their crimes and apologized sincerely. That is... Except for Watson. He was proud of what he had accomplished. The government made deals. The men signed on. Again, except for Watson. But he soon got off on a technicality. And the government let it go. At that. But either through his stubbornness or because Patterson was jealous, Watson was soon thereafter fired. And feeling betrayed, Watson set out to have something bigger than Patterson. And he found it. Watson met with Charles Flint of CTR, or Computing Tabulated Recording Company, and both had a healthy respect for each other's accomplishments. Still, being the type of men they were, they did not hit it off right away, and Watson had still not cleared himself with the federal government. But soon the government backed off, and Watson convinced the board to take a chance on him. His most persuasive argument was how much money he would make them. But the lingering charges affected Watson. Instead of coming into CTR, as it was called, as president, he would enter his first day, May 1st, 1914, as general manager. But he still had enough power to run things his way and implemented a strategy he learned at the cash. A point club for salesmen was set up. The more points they earned, the greater their pay and other incentives. And just like uniforms for the armed forces, each salesman wore a black suit with a white shirt. And Thomas Watson might have been ruthless with the competition, but with his own staff, he was supportive and understood their needs. He developed a sense of belonging. And in 1915, just after his conviction was put aside, Watson became president of CTR. As he worked on for the next few years, securing CTR's base and slowly expanding it, several of Watson's obstacles were removed. Patterson, who Watson hated being compared to, died in 1922. A CTR chairman named Fairchild, who opposed Watson when he could, died in 1924. And finally, Hollerith had completely removed himself due to poor health. CTR was beginning to change into everything Watson had ever wanted. And with this change, he felt a new name was needed something that reflected the company's main focus. No longer did CTR sell cheese slicers and time clocks. They offered machines that helped large companies. Someone then suggested international business machines, and Watson ran with it. And he constantly pushed the idea of the IBM family and their collective spirit. There were always picnics and rallies and dances. This was an IBM family, and Watson encouraged them all to quote, look upon me as the head of the family, unquote. And the father took good care of his workers, with good pay and unheard of working conditions and benefits. The connection between IBM and the entity that would become Dehomag was established long before Hitler came to power. With the start of the Great War in 1914, the Dehomag was taken over by the German government because it was owned by an enemy national. But Watson was not upset by this. If anything, he was pleased. It was now protected by the German government and would be looked after. In 1937, he reminisced with Nazi economics minister Schott that he appreciated what Germany did for his company there. It was looked after and grown, and he couldn't have imagined a better protector than himself. His feelings of gratitude made him disposed to sympathize with Germany and their problems. He ended that 1937 letter with, quote, his understanding of the German people and their aims under the leadership of Adolf Hitler, unquote. But the connection between the two companies needs further explanation. After the Great War, Germany suffered horrendous inflation. And in 1922, Heidinger's Dehomag still only leased Hollerith equipment and technology owned by IBM. There was no way Dehomag could pay the royalties it owed IBM, and with the German currency being all but worthless, this was guaranteed. So Watson, timing it just right, traveled to Germany to see Heidinger and made him choose between bankruptcy or giving back a controlling stake in the company. By the time they were done, Watson controlled 90% of the former German company. Now that he had control, Watson took a personal hand in controlling his new company. He set sales quotas and was delighted by improvements to the Hollerith system by German engineers. Soon, Dehomag had established offices and subsidiaries in other European countries. And by 1933, the year Hitler came to power, Dehomag passed its quota, set by Watson, by 237%. Yes, De Helmag, owned mostly by IBM, was ready for the future as a new government came to Germany.